think that the pandemic has thrown a wrench in thinking about turnout because it is just not going to look like a regular election now. You know, when you've got Joe Biden up in Florida by 10 points among voters who are 65 and older, okay, that's great because Hillary Clinton was down with that demographic by seven points. The problem is, is those people are the most likely to feel nervous about actually going to the polls. And now the good fight with Yasha Monk. We have all been so inundated in news about the coronavirus that I have decided to do an episode this week which mostly talks about other important things, including the upcoming U.S. election. But in my little spiel at the beginning of this podcast, I do want to talk about where we stand. I have to say that after a bevy of activity and of writing about corona, as we then called it, in the first weeks of March, I hadn't been writing much about it. And the reason is that I felt that there was a lot of conflicting news coming down the transom. My overall picture didn't seem to be becoming any clearer. Now I'm afraid to say that the last weeks have brought some bad news, especially in the United States. The three big reasons to hope that we might come out of this pandemic faster than some people assumed have mostly been dashed. The first of these was that antibody tests might show that a much, much greater number of people have been infected with the coronavirus than tests have hitherto shown. And perhaps enough people might have been infected that the actual infection fatality rate would be so low that we could simply reopen our countries, reopen the economy. Now, there are a set of studies from parts of Germany, from the Netherlands, from New York State. And while the results vary a little bit and should be taken with a big grain of salt, they don't seem to indicate that the number of people who are infected with the coronavirus is big enough, is high enough, that we can simply get to herd immunity in the absence of an effective treatment or a vaccine. The best figures we have for New York State imply that it would take about 2 million deaths for the United States to reach herd immunity. So for now, that strategy remains the reserve of the stupid and the sociopathic. The second big hope I had was that we would very quickly find an effective treatment against COVID-19. If we could save most people by giving them the right drugs, that would obviously be a kind of salvation. Unfortunately, hydroxychloroquine, the drug that Donald Trump has been talking up for a long time, has, not very surprisingly, proven to be ineffective in trials. Actually, the number of people who died when they were administered the drug was higher than those who died when they were not administered the drug in a number of key studies in France and the United States. There's also another drug, remdesivir, on which scientists had always put a lot more hope. But that drug, too, has failed its first randomized clinical trial. Now, there are more trials of both of these drugs underway. They might bring better results. There are lots of other candidates for a treatment on which we might still have hope. It is possible that we will get a vaccine much earlier than the 12 or 18 months which experts estimate. But for now, it does not look like we'll have a wonder drug anytime soon.
Now, the third hope was that we would be able to put in place a very effective mechanism of test and treat, that governments would succeed in testing so many people, in tracing the social contacts, in putting those who may have been exposed to the virus into quarantine, that we could go back to some version of our not-quite-normal lives, wearing masks, getting tested for the virus a lot, putting people who may have been exposed in quarantine for two weeks at a time, but having open bars and restaurants and shops and factories and universities. Well, some countries may be close to that. South Korea may be close to that. Uh, there are some signs that European countries like Germany may be inching towards that, though it's too early to tell. But one thing that's clear is that the United States is nowhere near getting to that stage. In fact, the federal government seems to have given up on even attempting to get there. And though some states like New York and Massachusetts are making valiant effort to step into the breach, it is unlikely that they have the resources, the universal trust from the population in order to pull it off. And even if they do, viruses are not going to respect state borders. Now, let me be clear, despite all the tragic news over the last weeks, this is not the worst of all possible timelines. The fatality rate from corona does seem lower than some of the initial estimates suggested. In much of the world, we have been surprisingly effective at social distancing. In part, as a result, we have not had to turn people who are in desperate need of medical treatment away from emergency rooms in most cities and countries around the world, including the United States. Things could be even worse than they are. But it is also clear that this pandemic is costing an enormous number of lives and that a quick deliverance is not in sight. The virus is too deadly to let it rip through the population. A wonder drug is not in sight and the United States appears to be miserably failing at putting in place the test and trace regime we need to open up the economy in a safe way. Well, now that I have thoroughly depressed you, it is time for a relatively cheerful conversation with Sarah Longwell. Sarah is one of the favorite people I've gotten to know over the last years. You can read more about her in a great New Yorker profile that was published just a couple of weeks ago. Sarah came to prominence for the first time as the head of a lock cabin Republicans, of, of Republicans who were fighting for LGBTQ rights. She has since gone on to found Republicans for the Rule of Law, a great organization uh, cutting ads against the abuses of the rule of law from the Trump administration, among other things. And she's the publisher of The Bulwark. Sarah and I obviously have some important political differences, but we're united in the hope of defeating Donald Trump this fall. And she has a lot of insight to offer about how it is possible to reach voters who may have supported him in 2016 but are now open to voting for Democrats. We also speak about my recent experience of watching for the first time and live tweeting The Sound of Music. So I promise that this conversation will cover a broad terrain of topics. I hope you'll enjoy it. 
Today, I'm very happy to welcome to The Good Fight, Sarah Longwell. Sarah is the publisher of The Bulwark and the co-founder of The Republicans for the Rule of Law. She is one of the seminal voices of conservatives who are not unclear or befuddled in their view of Donald Trump and the threat of populism in this country and around the world. So I thought, Sarah, that we would give ourselves a break from COVID-19. We'll cover it a little bit at the end. But primarily, I want to understand how to think about the prospects for getting a sane conservatism in this country that is not beholden to populists. I'm not a conservative, but I recognize that there's a lot of people in this country who are right of center and who need to have a sensible option that is not disrespectful of our basic institutions if we're going to have a successful country and a successful government. So let's start perhaps with your personal journey. You've been a Republican operative for a very long time. Why do you think you ended up on this side of the fence when so many of your old friends and colleagues ended up on the other side of it? Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that I have always been somebody whose operations within the Republican Party has always been a little adversarial, where I, early on, I spent the last 10 years with the log cabin Republicans, so pushing for LGBT rights within the Republican Party. And so I guess I was used to being somebody who was kind of always fighting for a slightly different version of what the Republican Party was. I think how I'm fighting that or even thinking about it has changed considerably because early on, I would say it was more about how do you have a Republican Party that deepens its commitment to pluralism? You know, I was there for a lot of the economic theory and personal responsibility and limited government, but wanted a Republican Party that was more welcoming to a more diverse set of people. And I sort of always thought if you could tamp down some of the religious conservatism or some of the sort of cultural conservatism that was a little bit more bigoted that has always been, I think, a bit of a strain in the Republican Party and has since gone from sort of a recessive gene to more of a dominant gene. I was always sort of seeking a better version of the Republican Party. And so now in the age of Trump, I will happy to admit all of the things that took me by surprise, ways in which I had sort of always argued that there was this path. And I was sort of a deep believer in the post-Mitt Romney loss autopsy, the sort of vision that presented for a Republican Party that expanded who it was appealing to. And of course, the Republican Party basically went in the exact opposite direction and decided to have a deeper connection with some very specific demographics as opposed to trying to broaden out. And that leads us to a whole host of sort of new revelations and then problems with sort of what the modern Republican Party is. So why do you think that happened? You know, Mitt Romney loses to Barack Obama. Republicans have lost the second big national election. It is clear that there are demographic changes in this country that somewhat favor liberals and Democrats, though, as Rutik Sarah pointed out in a recent episode uh, of his podcast, that's not as obvious a story as some people might think it is. And so the smartest strategists in the Republican Party come together and say, look, there's all of these Hispanics, there's a lot of Asian Americans, there's a lot of other people who actually share a lot of our values. If we just show that they're welcome in this party, if we just deal with a couple of issues like immigration, we can get a big share of the vote among them and remain competitive for a long time to come. You know, why is it that the party did not follow that lead? And how optimistic are you that those reasons aren't going very deep? That the fact that the party did not follow that direction isn't an indication 
of the extent to which white identity politics really is the driver of a lot of a conservative coalition. Yeah, so I think that the sort of white grievance identity politics that's been identified as ascendant within the Republican Party is a fair thing to acknowledge, but perhaps I think it is somewhat more shallow than other people might think, um, and therefore something that can be overcome. I think that the Republican Party, in some ways, there was a combination of that white working class grievance attached to being almost a victim of circumstance. And this isn't to excuse anything, but just if you think about the 2016 election, what happened was there was this incredibly big field, just like we just saw happen with the Democrats. And I was there for sort of the Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio kind of version of what the Republican Republican Party was trying to move into, which I think really was closer to that kind of post-Mitt Romney, how are we thinking about this? Can we address immigration? Can we have a broader coalition? But because the field was so large, right, Donald Trump was able to exist in his kind of burn it all down lane and get a plurality of votes that led him to, just by the way the primary ran, ultimately consolidate enough people to become the nominee. It wasn't that he was ever polling with a majority of the Republican Party. And in fact, most of the Republicans that I talked to, it's hard to find somebody who voted for him in the primary. And then the general election comes and it was less certainly for Republicans, not speaking about the rest of the country, but just for Republicans, it had a lot less to do with voting affirmatively for Donald Trump than it did voting against Hillary Clinton. And the Hillary Clinton thing was really, really, I can't tell you how baked into the Republican psyche hatred for the Clintons and particularly Hillary Clinton was. Plus, we were coming off of eight years of Obama and being out of power and there just being a sense of you know, no, like that's not that uncommon in these elections for after eight years of incumbency for people to basically be like, I'm going to give this other guy a chance. And so I think that the Trump portion or hold on the Republican Party was much less apparent and much less ready to be diagnosed with his election. I think it is much more ready to be diagnosed now that we've had several years of Donald Trump. And it has revealed a number of pathologies that exist within the Republican Party in terms of a willingness to, A, excuse behavior they would never excuse, not just from a Democrat, but seemingly historically wouldn't have excused, as well as a much less – like when I came to the Republican Party or, or even conservatism, it was rooted in there being actually a real thesis behind what the conservative movement was, what republicanism was, what it stood for. That is all gone, right? The relationship to uh, fiscal responsibility and to character counting, to free trade, to America's role in the world, like all gone. And so it is hard now to, to even understand the Republican Party in a way that doesn't relate directly to the personality of Donald Trump. That's really interesting. I have two slightly different follow-ups on that. Let me push you first on the ideological one and then more on the strategic one. If there's any extent to which I'm sympathetic to the rise of populism, or at least understand the roots of it, it does seem to be that we had gotten into a political situation in which many of the driving ideals, slogans, policies of the mainstream political parties Though I think they actually had served a real utility in the previous decades, we're slightly starting to run out of steam. We're starting to no longer seem to be providing the right answers to change circumstances. And when it comes to the Republican Party, I think there's a strain of thinking that says the base of the Republican Party had never really cared about things like fiscal responsibility as much as its sort of elite leadership. If they did back in the 80s or something like that, the nature of its constituency had changed over time. 
to such an extent that this was no longer the kit that held together the party. And so, yes, there's specific things about Trump in 2016 that explain his election, but there's also things that the other 16 guys on the stage, and they were mostly guys, all shared. And those things didn't actually speak to their electorate, and that's why there was this gaping hole out in the right through which Trump could run. Do you agree with that analysis? And if so, you know, is there a change in how non-populist Republicans need to update some of those guiding values of a Republican Party in order for it to become capable of gaining the sort of fervent support of more than political elites and the donor class and so on? Do I agree with that analysis? I think it is certainly true that there was a, again, a plurality of people who I think were there for that. But I I think part of what happened, right, is you had Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, and a whole bunch of guys who sound roughly the same and probably overlapped and agreed on 90% of the things that they believed in. They would overlap quite a lot with Mitt Romney. They were actually getting, if you added them all together, they would win. There would still be a dominant Hmm. strain of the Republican Party and Donald Trump would have less. The problem was they were fracturing that vote. And I think that there's some question then as to like where somebody like Ted Cruz was fitting in or Ben Carson. Our current secretary of of HUD. That's right. And he comes up a lot of when people, if people remember at all who they voted for in the primary and they often don't, which is something I find super interesting just in terms of stickiness and their level of commitment to who they voted for. People often just don't remember who it was, but he, he comes up a lot when people do seem to remember. They like liked him a lot. So like, I don't know how you quite break it down in terms of the party and who they were there for if you look at 2016 in the aggregate. But I guess I just don't quite buy that so many people were there to blow things up in the early part of 2016. I also think that there were people who were trying to have a conversation that was a different way of addressing some of the things that you're talking about. So if you remember Paul Ryan, you know, RIP Paul Ryan, but Paul Ryan was somebody who was talking pretty aggressively about income inequality and just how Republicans needed to start addressing this problem, which is very different from like the Tom Cotton way of talking about populism, whatever. But I mean, I think people, there were there were strains of it starting to percolate to address those things. But that kind of more responsible type rhetoric has clearly been sort of run out of the party. And now it is much more grievance-based, right? It is a, well, the way to talk about this is to blame immigrants or, or to focus on immigration as um, the root of part of the economic problems. Anyway, I don't know that that quite answers your question, but I guess I agree with you more than I might have years ago, but I'm not entirely there. Yeah, I think it does answer the question. What you're saying is that some of those values are in need of updating, but you shouldn't overinterpret the 2016 election, that perhaps they do hold a bigger hold over the Republican electorate than is obvious from the election of Donald Trump. I mean, perhaps that speaks to a second question I have, which is that, you know, I have trouble thinking through the extent to which we should take the extremely high approval ratings for Donald Trump among the Republican base, which is a dwindling asset, as indicative of a real ideological turn. It seems to me that it was impossible to criticize Ronald Reagan if you were a Republican in the 1980s, and that did set the ideological tenor of a party for 30 years. But it was also very hard to criticize George W. Bush in 2003-2004 if you were a Republican, And yet, George W. Bush does not seem to have had a lasting impact on the nature of the Republican Party's political ideology in quite the same way. So to what extent do you think that the rallying around Trump that's clearly happened over the last years within the Republican base is indicative of what the nature of a party would be in the long run? 
the one part of that I would push back on is the idea that people weren't critical of George W. Bush within the party. Because one of the things that I think is interesting, and it, it has also become ascendant, is actually the sort of anti-foreign adventurism that, especially younger, whether it's libertarians or, or conservatives, I mean, Trump's anti-war, anti-Iraq war sort of posture became very much one of his assets. And there was that strain was there for George W. Bush that was very critical of him and was very critical of the war. And one of the things I liked about being a Republican that I believe was important about being a conservative and I saw as them having an edge over Democrats is I felt like there was a much more pressure to, to sort of be an ideological lockstep on the left than there was on the right. I felt like there was much more tolerance for dissension in the ranks among the right, which is something that's been completely eradicated in the Trump era. And in terms of Trump's hold on the party ideologically, so to say that that he has an ideological hold is to suggest that there's an ideology there at all. And I, I guess I'm I think there are people who are trying to put infrastructure around his uh, intellectual infrastructure around sort of his just pet peeves um, that have now become associated with the party. But I don't know that I would call it an ideology in a way that the conservative movement post-Reagan did have a three-legged stool of kind of foreign policy, economic policy, and social policy that was quite coherent and there was sort of this fusionism notion. And Reagan had this famous quote, and I used to say it all the time when I was talking about the LGBT stuff is I would, you know, Reagan would always say somebody who I agree with 80% of the time isn't 20% my enemy, they're 80% my friend. And this party now brooks no dissent. And that has become one of the most alarming things. But I think one of the, the key differences is the rise of negative partisanship and just and partisanship and tribalism in general. Because I actually, I would just say that we saw it really rise with Obama in the eight years of Obama, where people basically started to camp out in their political tribes and things just got more and more rigid. And there was much more self-policing and self-enforcing that everybody get on the same page, be on the same side. And I think that's happening on both sides politically. But the hyper-partisanship we're in now and the negative part negative partisanship is basically like, I'm not even voting for this thing. I'm just voting against this other thing. And I think you're going to see in this 2020 election that it is going to be a referendum on Trump and people voting against Trump and maybe not affirmatively for some democratic vision. And I think it was exactly the opposite in 2016. I hear it in every focus group I do. People say, I didn't vote for Donald Trump. I voted against Hillary Clinton. So that's a great segue to the main thing that I want to talk about, because we do have an election coming up, and you've done a lot of work speaking to voters who may vote for Donald Trump but are not gang-ho about Donald Trump. You spend a lot of time in your capacity as the publisher of The Bulwark, publishing conservative voices that are critical of Trump, and you spend a lot of time with Republicans for the rule of law trying to cut ads and really reach a mass public pushing them in the direction of recognizing how dangerous Donald Trump is for some of the values that Republicans and conservatives should, in theory, most care about. What is the argument that people are actually susceptible to? If you want to actually persuade people who are not liberal, who are not progressive, who are on the conservative side, there's something to worry about Trump. What's a dumb way, an ineffective way of doing that? And what's an effective way of doing that? Yeah. Um, well, the dumb way is to say, hey, you yokels and you dum-dums who voted for Donald Trump, look what an idiot that guy is and you guys are idiots for voting for him. Which is why I think running just strategically when you think about persuasion going into an election, the question is not how do you get people to understand like what a jerk Donald Trump is? Because 
they know. <laughs> like, I mean, these, in these focus groups, when you talk to Trump voters, they're not, they don't want them to come over and raise their kids. Like they, they, <laughs> they are on top of all of the problems. Now, granted, I think unlike those of us who are like political super users and who, you know, follow every statement and every press conference, they're not doing that. But they also were mm. like, this guy needs to put Twitter down. This guy's a narcissist. He's kind of a sociopath. Like you hear those things pretty consistently. The problem is for them, right, that they with the negative partisanship the media, the Democrats, there's this whole other cabal out there, and at least he's on their side, right? He's their blunt instrument to own the libs, push back on a bunch of cultural changes that they're uncomfortable with and policy changes to some degree. So what do you do for people who who see all the negative things? Well, you don't just tell them more about the negative things because they get that. The question is, can you make an affirmative case for Joe Biden? So one of the things that sort of strikes me in these focus groups, especially the ones I've been doing since Joe Biden became the nominee is how poorly defined and like just an opaque figure he is to them, despite the fact that he's been in public service and public visibility for 40 years, uh, as long as we've been alive and he was a vice president. So, I mean, like you, you think people should know him, but they don't, they have very little sense of him. And they think that the Democratic Party is going off the rails. It's becoming too liberal. Donald Trump is their wall for sort of, you know, the liberal insanity that's happening, which is why Donald Trump wanted to run against Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders was going to feed, and Elizabeth, and Elizabeth Warren too, he wanted to feed that narrative, because that narrative is important. It's especially important with college-educated Republicans and right-leaning independents who really find Trump to be difficult to swallow, but they just worry so much about the left going off the rails. So it seems to me that there's two very different takeaways for, say, the Biden campaign you might have from that. One is that Biden is not sufficiently defined and you desperately need to define him in order to make sure that he doesn't end up being defined by Trump campaign ads and Fox News and so on. But the other way of thinking through this is that if it's mostly a matter of negative partisanship, and you're just trying to make sure that the people who are potentially willing to join the Democratic fold don't fear the Democratic candidate more than they dislike Trump, then actually lacking definition is not necessarily a bad feature because something that's not defined is not all that scary. I don't know. I, I think the problem there is that people are able to impute on Joe Biden, a sense that he is just like the rest of them. Look, Joe Biden is a flawed candidate, like just about anybody who is going to run would have been. He's old. He shows his age oftentimes when he is debating or talking in general. And he's got a long, long, long record that people can sort of poke holes in. But he's a great candidate in other ways. And, and one of the ways is that Joe Biden's whole rap is that he's like the empathy guy. You know, he's kind of like got that Bill Clinton, I feel your pain. White working class voters like him. It's hard to pin him as being a radical socialist because that's just like not who the dude's been the whole time. And also, Joe Biden is like a last vestige, like a thing that is fast disappearing of the kind of person who will still say, yeah, I want Republican votes. You know, there was this like mini ripple through Republican circles a while back because Amy Klobuchar did this thing that seems not that weird, but to me, but was like a big deal where she said, hey, um, if somebody went up to her and said, I I'm, hey, I'm pro-life, is there room for me in your coalition? And she said, of course, there's room for you in our coalition. There are things that we disagree about, but like, of course, there's room. And people were like stunned by this, right? Because the, the posture now is to basically be like, well, if you're not meeting every single one of these things, you're out. And I think that Joe Biden has that capacity to say, I open this tent to you. I say that we're a big tent. I want you here. Republicans, you are welcome. And like he can make that pitch, 
I think both authentically and and in a way that like people who are who want to make Republicans the enemy in order to to continue to accelerate the negative partisanship because it works to their political advantage. He's not going to do that. And so he he does have this opportunity to pick people up that other people in the party don't. But doesn't that imply that he's a little bit more defined than you were saying? Which is to say that I think people don't have a sense that he's... Well, he's defined to me. Right. I mean, I think that, but the voters that I listen to don't have that sense yet. But they could have that sense once this becomes a two-person race and it's highly visible and Joe Biden's actively out there making that pitch. I see. So, So this, I think, is interesting. You know, I my tendency is to think that policy matters and that opponents of populists make a mistake when they just run on, I'm not the bad populist, that they need to have some message of hope that actually says, hey, there are real problems in the world. Here are my solutions for them. And they're realistic and you can buy them and they're not going to completely transform our lives in radical ways, but they will actually make your life better in appreciable ways. And I'm going to get that done. You know, in this context, I wonder whether that's true, because everything that Joe Biden is likely to say along those lines is going to make him more attackable from the right because they are going to be progressive policies, many of which I believe in, but that actually lends itself to those kinds of attacks. And so is there a way that he can try to define himself precisely by his character, by the empathy, which is clearly a big part of what the campaign has been doing? And I think it has an advantage of it being sincere. Every reporter who has reported on Joe Biden, including some who are very negative in the profiles of him in the book about the 1988 campaign, bring out that he really does want to get to connect with every single voter. He cares about having that sense of communion between politician and electorate, and that he clearly does not look down on much of a country. He doesn't judge people who have voted for Donald Trump. He doesn't judge people who don't have college degrees. That's not who he is. And so does he need a promise? Does part of the definition need to be around policy? Or can he just lean into trying to make sure that the image you have of him is the image that less politically interested people will also wind up with. And and how would you do that? Yeah, so I think it's a little of column A and a little from column B. I think it's very important when, as a political candidate, I think policy only counts for so much and that a lot of times people are going to vote based on whether or not, especially people who are less political themselves, like, does this seem like a good person? Does he seem like he cares about people like me is a big metric that that people should look at. But policy is not nothing. And it has the opportunity to do two things. One, to define what you stand for and also to define what you don't stand for. So for example, mm. uh, Joe Biden has the opportunity. And one of the things that I think allowed him to distinguish himself in the campaign was that he was opposed to Medicare for all, right? Like as the Overton window is being pushed on what policies the Democrats uh, want, he sort of stands up and says, well, no, I want to fix it. I want to fix Obamacare. I want to expand on it. I want to bring more people in, but I don't want to go all the way over there, which frankly, all the way over there does not actually garner a ton of support. It was very popular on the Democrat debate stage, uh, but Medicare for all is not supported even anywhere close to by a majority of Americans. And in fact, it is much less. And so his opportunity, because healthcare is one of those issues that everybody cares about. And white working class voters and college educated everybody, but white working class voters, they're paying attention to it. The women that I talk to who are uh, voted for Trump, but are a little bit on the fence and are probably persuadable, it's that one of the issues that you hear come up the most in terms of things that they are will actually research and look at about a candidate because it matters to them. You know, I think Joe Biden's environmental policy, they might not find so, so interesting. Um, 
but his healthcare policy would be, and I think that can that can be persuadable or, or, or could be a mechanism of persuasion for some people on the fence. One of the things that's interesting about this election in my mind is not just whether or not Joe Biden will win, which is very important, um, but it's whether he's able to win a significant majority. I think many of the worst things about the United States in the last four years and what it has stood for in the world and many of the things about Donald Trump's effective control of the Republican Party can only be remedied by convincing victory, not by a narrow one. So I want to hold out hope that it's possible for Biden to get, let's say, 58 to 42 percent of a vote, winning the Electoral College with all of the states that he needs to in order to cobble together a majority, but also, say, places uh, like North Carolina or Arizona or other places that would really make this a very convincing victory. Now, there are some people who say that there are no swing voters anymore, that trying to persuade people who voted for Trump is a waste of time because the way that elections now work is just by mobilizing the base. I take it you disagree with that. What's your evidence for the possibility of even aiming for that kind of victory? What's your evidence for the idea that if Democrats want to win, they do need to be in the persuasion game, not just in the mobilization game? Obviously, I I hope that Joe Biden wins, or maybe that's not obvious, but I hope Joe Biden wins. I want him to win as decisively as possible, not only because I think a narrow victory will lend itself to a lot of confusion in our current polarized environment. It opens us up to a lot of Donald Trump positing that this was, you know, rigged in some way. And I think that's very, very bad for this country. But it is also important that he win decisively by, you know, he picks up like he wins Florida. He puts Texas in play. Those kinds of things will scare the pants off of Republicans. And if there is hope, and, and we haven't really gotten into this, but we talked about it on Wittes' podcast. You asked me about it and I didn't get to answer and I have a lot of thoughts on it, which is like, what is the future of the Republican Party and how would that take shape in a post-Trump world? One of the only ways for the Republican Party to not internalize for a long time all of the terrible lessons of the Trump era, because Trump won and that was such a big deal. And it's one of the reasons why I was so much more bullish on the idea of the Republican Party being in good shape to reinvent itself, or like that it wasn't there, all there for Trump in 2017 versus how I think about it now. It's because so much of it, the party has internalized uh, a lot of these bad lessons. So if he loses by dramatic margins, that's the kind of thing that causes a Republican Party to be like, so Governor Larry Hogan, what are you doing these days? Versus, hey, Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley or whatever. What we need is just more populism just done a little bit better. So, yes, I think it has to be decisive. I think to be that kind of decisive, you have to pick up, you know, politics is a game. People seem to forget this, that it is a game of addition and not subtraction, right? So you're trying to expand that coalition as widely as possible, which means it is always a and prospect. Yes, you need large turnout, but you also need to persuade voters. And the good news is, is that there are a bunch of people in this environment that are all persuadable. Like, are you going to get the Trump base? Are you going to get people who go to rallies to vote for Joe Biden? No, you're not. But that's not everybody. I mean, I think people just think that voters are a monolith in this way that they're not. Well, and they're thinking of sort of the most extreme Trumpkins. I, I tweeted this recently where, you know, people keep talking about what would it take for the people who are most in on Donald Trump to turn on him? And the answer is nothing. It's impossible. Nothing. Forget but the it. Forget matter. them. Forget them. Because yeah, that's, that's 20, 25% of the population. The question is, how do you get those people who kind of like Trump, but are not that interested in politics, you know, the people who are conservative, but actually dislike Trump quite deeply, right? But is that possible? What do you do in order to get them? Where are the points in which you can push them? 
Yeah. So look, I think it's going to be different for different places, right? So the vice presidential pick in Joe Biden's case is going to be more important than it's been for just about anybody in a long time. Number one, because people view him not irrationally as a one-term president, as somebody who's like just just from an age perspective. And so whoever he picks has going to have a huge impact on what the future of the party looks like. And the difference between Elizabeth Warren or Stacey Abrams or Amy Klobuchar, those are radically different propositions, all of them, in terms of who they appeal to and what they set up the party to be. And so if you were asking me, I would tell him to pick Amy Klobuchar specifically for electoral advantage reasons, which is it helps you in Michigan. It helps you in Pennsylvania, that Midwestern sensibility, and with the college-educated women that basically just uh, and college-educated voters in general who surged in those primaries to show up and just put Bernie Sanders so far in the distance. Like, you need that to happen in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, in Arizona, and frankly, in Florida. But like a Hispanic vice presidential candidate who was a, might play better in Florida than it would in Arizona than it would in, you know, Pennsylvania. So the point is, is that like how you make like a sweeping, sweeping pickup of those voters is like doing all of it. Like you have to have a massive surge in turnout. You have to find young people. You have to find a whole bunch of people who didn't participate last time and just felt like eh, Hillary Clinton's going to win and I don't really like her, so I'm not going to charge about all those people have to turn out. And then you've got to persuade a bunch of people who voted third party last time, which was incredibly decisive in Donald Trump's victory, especially in those key swing states. you got to pick those people up. Uh, and you've got to increase turnout, too, among people who sat out who are probably right-leaning independents or just pure independents who sat out 2016. You need them to get in the game. And a lot of those were women. And you've seen that enthusiasm make a difference both in 2018 and in the Democratic primary. So anyway, you just you have to do it all. And I'm concerned about that because I think that the pandemic has thrown a wrench in thinking about turnout because it is just not going to look like a regular election now. You know, when you've got Joe Biden up in Florida by 10 points among voters who are 65 and older, okay, that's great because Hillary Clinton was down with that demographic by seven points. The problem is, is those people are the most likely to feel nervous about actually going to the polls. And they turn out typically at an 82% rate. So what will they do in 2020 if the pandemic is still around? Like those are open questions we don't know the answers to. And we certainly can't model. And I want to get back to questions around the pandemic and COVID-19, which I do think are important with Connors as well. But uh, before we get there, take us inside one of those focus groups that you do. So when you talk, I think you talk particularly to two sets of groups, as I understand it. One is college-educated women in Midwestern states, and then one is working-class women in Western states. You know, what do we like about Trump and what do we dislike about Trump? I think there's this sense among well-educated people, among liberals, among progressives, that they like Trump because he's nasty, that they like Trump because of his racism, frankly, that they like Trump because he plays into these identity politics grievances. Is that right? So I start the focus groups the same way every time, and they tend to go the same way every time, which is you say, how do you feel like things are going in the country? And everybody looks at you, just nobody says anything. Everyone just stares at you. And then they're like, well, what do you mean? And prior to COVID, there was this sense where people immediately wanted to be like, well, do you mean economically? 
and we always knew this was coming at this point. So we're like, let's take economically first. And they would be like, well, economically, things are good. And not everybody always thought that they were good for them personally, but they had really internalized sort of the macroeconomic idea that things were better and going in the right direction. Then you say, okay, well, what about everything else? And everybody would be like, bad. Things are bad. People, it feels like uh, we're being torn apart. It feels like, you know, it's we're like a powder, you hear powder keg a lot or other things that just, you know, it just doesn't feel good in the country right now. And it's so divided. And Trump has responsibility for that. Like, you know, they blame him for a lot of that. But what's funny is, is they would tell you like, you know, oh, people are so mean and whatever. And then pretty soon though, like, you know, 20 minutes later, they'd be like, yeah, but these libs are terrible. You know, like Mm. uh, the, the Democrats are the worst, you know, and they'd kind of start in and, you know, this is the thing about people, right? And this is why when people are social scientists or political scientists and they're trying to slice people up into demographics and look for clean answers about why people do what they do, there's like so much at play. And some of it just has to do with people have light and dark in them, right? They have they have good impulses and bad impulses. And you can see when you're talking to them, a lot of the good impulses exist and are there. But Donald Trump really just tugs at those worst impulses and pulls people in that direction. And so they know what they're supposed to say, and they know that things aren't good and that it's bad when you're mean to people. And it's bad when you call people names and it is bad when you're racist. At the same time, there's this sense of like, but he also says what people are, what sometimes we're thinking and you're not supposed to say. They hate the political correctness. They hate feeling talked down to like the media and Democrats. They feel like people have really been just talking down to them, don't take them seriously, think they're stupid. And like coming from the Republican side and having sort of been ensconced in that dynamic, I think there's real truth in feeling that way. Like, And you see that right now, right, with Hillary Clinton's deplorables comment or the kind of rube nation that you hear in the way people talk about Trump supporters. Like people take it personally and then they ascribe it to an entire political party where they feel hated. And so then there's not much room for persuasion if you feel like that side actively hates you and doesn't want your vote. And so they may not like Donald Trump or think that he's a good person, but they feel like I hear there's a lot of he's trying. There's a lot of, well, he can't catch a break because the media, the media, the media. I mean, the hatred for the media cannot be overstated. The other thing I'll say that always kind of alarms me in the groups is just there's no trust for anything like hmm. institutions, politicians, like people. We use the phrase what aboutism as kind of like a Twitter term or whatever. Right, and it's, right. it's a dynamic. But really what it is, is people saying, yeah, you know what? I've lived long enough now to see that nobody really means anything. Everybody's corrupt. All politicians lie. So what? Donald Trump lies a little more like I mean, this is something that I always find fascinating. They know he lies like he doesn't tell the truth, but they think he's honest. And what they mean by honest is, right, he's straightforward. He's telling it like it is. He's not holding back. And so I think there, when you talk about, um, or I, I don't know if you do, but like the political correctness element is just something that has clearly been a grievance that has been nurtured to such a point where he is like burst forth as this like truth teller, whatever, because they feel for so long that even when they tried to like explain, and, and I heard a lot of this during the LGBT stuff, that there's this real sense of like, I'm just trying to tell you what I believe as a result of my religion or my upbringing or whatever, and you're telling me I'm a bigot for it. And that that stuff sits really bad with people. And we could argue on here whether or not it's it's still a fair characterization, but like that is why so many people are dug in. That's fascinating. You know, I do think that at his most 
politically clever moments, Trump is able to walk that line where he's sort of honest about being dishonest in a very convincing way. I always think of a moment when Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were asked, I think it was in separate occasions, why she had been at his wedding, which is, of course, an amazing fact about American politics. And Hillary Clinton responded, well, I thought it would be fun, which is an evident lie, right? I mean, nobody thinks that Hillary Clinton's idea of fun is to be at Donald Trump's wedding. And Donald Trump said, I'm a real estate developer in New York. I got to have good connections with anybody who's powerful. So Trump is actually being pretty honest about being egotistical, about being at least participating in a system of institutional corruption. But there's sort of something honest about the way he talks about that. And I think that is the sense that people get, you know, he's an asshole, but he's our asshole. It's a very powerful dynamic. Now, just to touch for a moment on the LGBTQ stuff, which I think speaks in interesting ways to a larger struggle that many of my listeners will frankly have with this conversation, which is, you know, so you have had for a long time of a lock having Republicans trying to push for LGBT rights within the Republican Party. How do you have honest conversations with people where you're not judging them, where you're not calling them bigots, where you're engaging with them in a mutually respectful way, but without giving up the corner you're fighting for, without giving up on your values, without conceding that, oh, well, perhaps there's sort of something wrong about being gay, right? Well, how do you stand your ground, but in a way that actually draws people in? Is there any piece of advice you can give to people on this issue or about other issues? Yes. Actually, I don't know if the term happy warrior is quite right, but it's something that I think about a lot in terms of a political disposition that I think is winning and helpful. And I had lots and lots of conversations with people where they were going to tell me things that in my stomach made me feel very sad. And part of it was that I did grow up in, in a more conservative environment and even then worked in a conservative environment while I was sort of coming out and trying to define my voice on things. And I was like an adult. I was out of college, really, when I started having these conversations. And I had a lot of friends who were deeply Christian or deeply Catholic and would say things like, well, I wouldn't come to your wedding, you know, whatever. And that would make me sad. But at the same time, I think my posture toward it was to always say, in order to win, not an argument, right? Because like, don't think about it like an argument. Think about it like, I am a personal ambassador for this. So they have all of these conceptions in their head about what a gay person is that are probably untrue. So I am trying to, more than anything, not convince them of my position. I am trying to convince them that I am a person of good faith there to meet them where they are and have an honest conversation with them and be decent to them and treat them like, you know, they're not horrible people. And to do that, right, if at the end what they do is say, I liked that person, then actually you've made quite a bit more headway than if you'd scored a bunch of points on, hey, I made the best argument here. And I actually think that the success of the LGBT movement is like everything that I think about in terms of why we still have the chance to turn these things around and why I believe in persuasion. Because I watched, I came out in 2005 when the first state passed gay marriage. I watched people actively change their minds about it and they changed their minds about it not because people bludgeoned them in to believing it or passed a bunch of laws saying you had to do it this way or that way. It was because they had people they already loved and liked in their lives who said, actually, I'm gay too. And a whole bunch of people went, oh, well, this changes how I feel about this thing. 
And so there's a lot of movements that try to recreate what the gay rights movement did. And I always try to caution people that it's not ever quite as applicable because there was something buried deep into the human connection and the human experience there that like was just uncovered that allowed that to happen properly. But the one thing you can learn is that people did decide, I'm going to try to persuade and I'm going to try to meet people where they are. And they there were conservative LGBT groups out there trying to actively talk to Christians and other people in a way that was not combative and in a way that didn't call them names. And that worked. It is why that issue won the day. Yeah, I do think one of the powerful mechanisms was that uh, there were so many people who are closeted that when it became relatively safe for many of them to come out and you saw more and more people coming out, you know, it's just virtually every American would have known somebody within their own circle of family or friends who came out and some of them closed their hearts to those people and expelled them from their lives. But that is a very tough thing to do, thankfully. And in many cases, love did win over those deep-seated prejudices. Um, And you're right that, you know, in a way, that is an inspiring story because it does show that human connections to to people who are in your life are stronger than those kinds of hateful ideologies. But in other ways, it is a cautionary tale that you can't easily recreate that when the numbers are different, when the situation is different. I have another uh, strand of a conversation that I want to make sure we cover. And is it, it about Sound of Music or are we ever, we're just like never going to talk about Sound of Music? You get to ask me a question at the end of a conversation okay, about great. Sound of Music if you like. How about that? But before that, it's the sound of something rather less fun, namely the virus. You know, you're saying that at the beginning of these focus groups, what happens is that people have this split instinct where they're saying, you know, the economy is going well. When I just think about sort of actually my life, things are better today than they were four years ago, or they're the same today than they were four years ago. But then if you talk to me about sort of the sphere of politics and culture and what happens when I switch on the news and when I look at my Facebook, all of that is terrible. I think that's one of the reasons why the arguments that I've been making in my book and on this podcast and so on have often fallen on deaf ears, which is to say that it's really hard to convince people of the cost that populism has for ordinary people, why we should care about things like independent institutions. When they look at their own lives and they say, things are fine. Now, it does seem to me like the pandemic is changing that, not entirely because of the thought of populists, for certainly the terribly botched response from the federal government has something to do with that in the United States. But I wonder, isn't that changing how people think about it? Where suddenly they say, well, you know what, Trump has made the cultural sphere difficult and everybody's hating each other and he is this narcissist and this guy who's nasty. And you know what? Suddenly my life sucks too. Do you think that that is going to move people or will they start to make excuses for him and say, look, after all, the virus is not his fault, which of course is true. And so why should we blame him for that? I've been doing some virtual focus groups amid the crisis. And I think one of the things that's clear is is that a lot of his voters don't blame him. And obviously, he did not create the virus. But the question is, is like, do they blame him? The, the aliens on those amazing videos that the Pentagon recently released clearly did. I mean, it was uh, just the first stage of the alien invasion. I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to seriously make that argument. I think it's only a matter of time until someone wins that. Well, I think it. isn't like Harry Reid making that argument? He seemed to imply it a little bit, perhaps, yes. I think you're right in the sense that you cannot overstate the importance of personal consequences. Look at how historically unpopular Trump was in the face of this. Like, that's how you know how unpopular it is, because the economy is roaring. The sun is shining. Life is good for people. And still, he's like living at 45 percent, you know, can't break 50 percent. And that's because he's loathsome. But then you add on top of that 
the idea that now actually it's very rainy and I'm trapped inside the house with my kids. And as this goes on, and here's the thing is, I think we're in the fog of war right now on COVID. I think people who make predictions about how this goes are making a mistake because it is not clear. One of two things could happen. It can get much, much worse. Right now, it has been actually you know, more prevalent in big cities that tend to be more democratic. And so the personal consequences haven't touched as many. Uh, I was just doing this focus group in Wisconsin, and, and none of them like knew anybody who'd had it, whereas I know lots of people in New York who have. And so I think if it goes in that direction, it continues to spread. And people like Governor Kemp open up too early, and Ron DeSantis opens up too early, and people are dying now in, in sort of redder areas, and, and the people who are Trump voters are actually... Because I'll tell you, I was talking to these Wisconsin voters about COVID, and they all think it's wildly over. Overblown. And the reason that they think that is because it's not happening to people around them. Right. I mean, it's a basic human fallacy where if you're ensconced in a bubble of people who all vote for Democrats, I've, I've had this conversation with friends who are like, I think that, you know, there must be something rigged there because I don't know anybody who votes for Republicans. How can there be people who vote for <laughs> That's Republicans? Right. Right? In a similar way, there really is nobody in your circle of friends and acquaintances who've suffered from COVID 19. And like you, I do know a lot of people who have, unfortunately. It's easy to think, oh, it's just made up in some kind of way. That's right. And they're trying to scare us. And this is about politics. And they're trying to make us feel bad. Like that is a real sense that exists out there. And if you're in these places, like it's not that surprising that these people, that there's people out there protesting it. If they're like, why am I locked in my house? Nobody has this where I am. And I'm angry that my job has gone away and everybody I know is furloughed and whatever. Like that is a crazy dynamic where you can't see or touch this thing. You don't feel threatened by this thing, but you have a real economic cost that you're bearing and a social cost and everything else. And so if it starts to hit these redder areas more and it looks like these Republican governors made huge mistakes and they see rising death tolls, well, that that is a killer for Donald Trump's electoral prospects 2020. On the flip side, if we basically do everything right and we flatten the curve and things return to normal by July or or it's, and and I know that that's <laughs> return to normal, but let's say things are reasonably we're out of our houses, work has resumed, and we're wearing face masks and practicing social distancing, but like things are are better. And now you're thinking to yourself, okay, we've got to rebuild the economy. This is terrible. We're in a recession, and who do you think people look at and say, the pandemic wasn't Trump's fault, but like, who do we want to rebuild the economy? Do we want to put the Democrats in charge to rebuild the economy? Or do we want the good old days back that this guy gave us? And I'm not saying that that's the right answer. I'm just saying that like, there will absolutely be a strain of that, that could be persuasive to some people who are saying, I don't know, maybe it's better to not, you know, have the Democrats suddenly taxing the heck out of us or whatever, in this moment when we're trying to rebuild. Well, all I can say is that though I've been talking about the threat of Trump and populism for three or four years, for longer than that, actually, my hope is that things do get better. And my hope is right. that the administration finally does the things it needs to in order for things to get better. I mean, it is a bizarre situation in which the people who have most politically at stake in wanting the administration to fail are desperately cheering it on to hopefully somehow do test and trace, put the measures in place that allow us to go back to a semi-normality in July. And if that means he has a much better chance of winning the election in November, so be it. You know, this is a question of life and death for hundreds of thousands of people. Unfortunately, my sense at this point is that he will uh, undermine his own electoral prospects by failing in the response and uh, killing a lot of Americans and hurting the economy in the process, which is a very 
pessimistic way to end this conversation. So instead, we are ending on the sound of music. Ask me whatever you want to know, just as one note to listeners to this podcast, I had never watched The Sound of Music, which is a virtually unknown movie in Germany where I grew up. So it is a cult movie in the United States and many other countries around the world. And I recently remedied this shortcoming and live tweeted my watching of The Sound of Music, which elicited a lot of great reaction gifs from Sarah. Yeah, so I was trapped inside my house, obviously. So I think I was far too invested in your watching of Sound of Music. And so I was like haranguing you on Twitter, which was probably a a little too much. But I uh, like, first of all, I still can't believe you hadn't seen it. And then also, though, you were suggesting you were basically teasing the idea that you weren't going to like it. And I had this reaction of, I mean, I probably haven't seen the movie in a decade. But when I was watching it, I probably for two decades watched it at least three times a year, probably at some point I was watching it just back to back, starting it over. No, all the music, love Julie Andrews. But I was just like the prospect of like, okay, well, as a grown up, if I saw this for the first time as a 40 year old, would I think that this movie was stupid? And the idea that you, (laughs) the idea that you, somebody I respect, might put that into the universe, might be like, I'm watching this for the first time as a grown man. And I'm going to tell you the music's dumb, the whole thing's problematic, whatever. I was going to just depress me so much. And so, because I went to bed, you I, and you had said you were only going to watch the first half, but I had gone to bed. The first thing I did when I woke up the next morning was check Twitter to see if you had <laughs> liked it. That's how invested I was. So well, just tell me uh, like how much you loved it. I did actually really like it. Let me explain, first of all, why I thought I wouldn't. And it's less sort of you know, it's not an intellectual snobbism, but it's a middle bra movie or anything like that. That wasn't my concern about it. I think it's, you know, growing up in Germany, not really having heard about the movie and then coming to England, especially in the United States, and people love this movie that's set in the 1930s in Austria that portrays a family as sort of heroes in their fight against Nazism in a way that so happens to fit very neatly into the Austrian national narrative of having been Hitler's first victims, even though actually, you know, a large majority of Austrians were quite happy to be incorporated into the Third Reich and went on to cheer Hitler when he invaded and so on. I think I just, something about the mixture I imagined between the mountains and Salzburg and Kitsch and a sort of self-promoting national narrative of Austria made me think that all of it would grate on me. Interestingly, I did I, not I did not bring that baggage to it when I was 12. Uh, well, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, th- but I have to say it's a very charming movie, and I think it deals with the history reasonably honestly. I mean, you know, obviously it's it happens to focus on the good guys, and there weren't that many of those around. And, you know, in, in the selection of a case lies a kind of easy political message. But it does show the way in which the society does turn towards the Nazis. And the Van Trapp family, of course, is a real historical precedent, so it's not like that is made up. And as a movie, it's very, very charming. I mean, I liked, I enjoyed the music. Uh, Julie Andrews is great in the role, and it's hard to resist. So I did go in with a lot of resistance, but sort of with with every damn song, my resistance was uh, was worn down. And if you haven't seen it in ten years, Sarah, don't worry about watching it again. You'll you'll like it the next time as much as the last time. What was your favorite song? I think the most effective song. And again, I I think I have the defect of looking at a lot of fiction from a political angle in a weird way. I like politically impactful musical numbers, whether it is in Tosca, where Cavaradossi is insisting on celebrating the freedom of his country, even though he's doing that in front of a tyrant and knows it might 
cost him his life or whether it is the wonderful Marseillaise scene in Casablanca where they play the French national anthem in front of the Nazi officers who are sitting there, or whether it's in The Sound of Music, I think to me it's the Edelweiss song. It's not the best song. It's not the best musical number, but I think it's the most meaningful song in the movie and it's the one that stayed with me the most. Okay, because my favorite song is You Are 16 Going on 17, which is, uh, as you noted, and I don't know if you saw this, but like I got in a thread conversation with somebody about it because you noted that it is problematic and it is like an incredibly sort of condescending song. That's always been my favorite. There's like a dance number in a gazebo while it's raining outside. And Rolf is this like early introduction for me to complicated characters and how people can change on you and how scary Mm. it was this idea that she like loved this guy and that he had said he was going to take care of her. And then he's like a Nazi who's coming at their family. Sorry, spoiler alert. But uh, that was not much of a spoiler. I took one look (laughs) at that guy and thought he's bad news. Bad news. Bad news. Yeah, I didn't catch that early on. But the thing is, is that the one thing that I've always thought saves that song from being in sort of the problematic area is that I don't lazel whoever plays her. The acting is so good that you know she's like in on the joke. Like it is just it's winking at you just enough to stay on the right side of not being like horribly sexist. Still obviously a product of its time, but just like sheer enjoyment of a song. That song is an earworm for the ages. Well, I do actually think that song is very clever. I think the original lyrics of it immediately grated on me, and I was uh, uncharacteristically politically correct in finding it problematic. Yeah, I think the lyrics that I had resistance to was, you need someone older and wiser telling you what to do. And then the echo of that in the young female character saying, I need someone older and wiser telling me what to do. But of course, later on, Maria does a sort of inversion of the lyrics which I think are very clever. There's a second sort of half to the song that is much later in the movie, and the lead character sings, you are 16 going on 17, waiting for life to start. Somebody kind who touches your mind will suddenly touch your heart. So she's in a way teaching Liesl to expect something more, which I think is a very beautiful redemption of that number. It is. Oh, I'm so glad you liked it. It makes me happy. Well, we'll uh, we'll have to watch it together. Why don't we uh, get all the listeners to this podcast and everybody else to do a live watch party or Netflix party sometime. Sounds Sarah, great. thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. This podcast is generously supported by the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.